0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Welcome to the 100th episode of Already Gone. Thanks go out to Monica, who was the first of many to ask that the story be told. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for helping the show reach this milestone. Before we continue, it's never easy to hear about a family annihilator, and this week's content is exceptionally disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. The Book of Mark, Chapter 3 A Bible was found open to this page in the living room of the house at 2121 Garson Street in Troy, Michigan, on September 29, 1964. The southwest end of the city of Troy borders both Birmingham and Royal Oak, and wedged between Coolidge Highway and Oakland County's Troy Airport is a Meyer store. Meyer is a Michigan based chain very similar to Walmart, and this location of Meyer opened in the mid 1970s. In those dark days, it was called Meyer's Thrifty Acres. Today, as you head north on Coolidge, Likely on your way to Somerset Mall, or the Somerset Collection, as it's now known, you probably won't notice the little cemetery on Coolidge. It's set back from the road, a small fenced-in rectangle, just in front of and slightly north of the Meyer Store. Originally, this was the Perrin family's burial ground, and the cemetery dates back to the early part of the 1800s. This small plot of land was known by many names over the years. The Anderson Ridge Cemetery, the Coolidge Cemetery, and finally, the Perrin Cemetery, which is how it's referred to today. When I was a kid, I lived not too far from the Meyers store, and my father and I often went there for groceries. If the weather was bad and we wanted to get out of the house and walk around in the evening— we would go to Meyer and roam the toy department and the sporting goods section, doing what my dad referred to as window shopping, talking about how we might one day go fishing, or get that 2,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and work it at the kitchen table. I have fond memories of these meandering childhood visits to Meyer with my dad. And the trips usually ended with a stop at the Purple Cow, Meyer's ice cream counter near the east exit. And I recall one night, I was probably in middle school, after doing our shopping, we visited the Meyer gas station on the northwest edge of the campus. And that's when I saw the cemetery, tucked behind the fueling center. I'm, I'm sure I'd seen the cemetery before. It was right on the edge of the Meyer parking lot. But this night, I really saw it. It was a nice night, either fall or spring. But the weather was good, and my dad and I decided we would park our car, and have a look around, and I remember walking through the old headstones, some of them so faded and worn that you could no longer read the inscriptions. We came across a row of gray rectangular markers. They were simple, bearing a name, a year of birth, and a year of death. Betty Jean and her children, Benson, Judith, Paula, Dory, Walter, and Betty Sue. All of them there, in a tiny cemetery next to a big box retail store. Dad and I stood in silence looking at the graves. Something terrible had happened. A tragedy, we speculated. Perhaps there was a fire and the family was lost. It was difficult to contemplate a whole family together dying on the same day of the same year. Their remains, their tragedy, partially concealed behind a gas station, next to the brightly lit parking lot of a 24-hour store. As I said, the scope of the tragedy was difficult to contemplate, but there they were. What I didn't know is that those headstones did represent a tragedy, the work of a family annihilator, a mentally ill man who couldn't control his thoughts or his actions and did the unthinkable.
2: I asked Gravlin if he had killed all the people in the house, and he nodded his head in the affirmative.
1: Come with me to the summer of 1964, when William Gravlin, a former fireman, sometimes factory worker, and former resident of the Pontiac State Hospital, committed an act of unforgivable evil. As we've talked about in previous episodes— The city of Troy was a mostly rural area through much of the 1960s and into the 1970s. Sure, there were pockets of homes, little neighborhoods here and there, and there were farmhouses dotting the farmland. But Troy was a small community. There was no downtown, no shopping district, just long roads that ran north toward Rochester and Pontiac Township. If you wanted to shop, depending on what part of Troy you called home, you might travel south to Clausen, or north to Rochester or Pontiac. In the mid-1960s, developers began eyeing the city of Troy for the creation of a new shopping plaza, a shopping mall, with dozens of stores under one roof. Oakland County already had Northland, a sprawling shopping plaza near Nine Mile and Greenfield Roads in Southfield. Northland opened in 1954, and at the time it was the world's largest shopping mall. The southeast corner of Troy, off a 14-mile between Interstate 75 and John R., was considered for a new shopping mall, and in 1965, a Sears store opened on the site. Oakland Mall, with a Hudson's store and many colorful shops and restaurants, will open in 1968. The mall was popular and successful, and within a decade, it doubled in size, adding a two-story North Wing in the late 1970s, and the new wing featured a movie theater and a J.C. JCPenney store. The parking lot surrounding the mall would grow to accommodate many outbuildings, including one of my favorites, a long-defunct eatery called Farrell's. Farrell's served lunch and dinner— but they were best known for their elaborate ice cream sundays and maze like candy shop you pass through on the way to the cashier. And as I said, the city of Troy was mostly rural. And a development like this, bringing jobs and tax dollars, was welcome. As plans for the shopping mall moved forward, it was easy to forget that just a few years earlier, this location, 14 Mile at John R., was the site of a horrific tragedy. In the fall of 1961, William Gravlin was struggling with mental illness. He had a wife, Betty, and a young daughter, Betty Sue. And he was also responsible for raising Betty's children from a previous marriage Ben, Dory, Paula, Judy, and Walter. Their birth father, Betty's first husband, was in prison when Bill Gravlin met Betty Bentley, a woman 10 years his senior. The two became romantically involved and soon married. Raising six children, five from her first marriage, and their young daughter, Betty Sue, was a challenge, both managing all of those kids and paying for food, clothing, housing, shelter. At the start of their marriage, things went well. Bill had a job as a fireman with the Royal Oak Fire Department. The marriage of Betty Jean and William hit a rough patch after only two years. This unfolded in part because of Bill Gravlin's mental illness. In October of 1961, Gravlin assaulted his sister-in-law, the wife of his brother, attacking her with a kitchen knife. Gravlin was taken to the Pontiac State Hospital for evaluation. The hospital provided a residential treatment setting for up to 3,000 patients a day in the 1950s. When Gravlin arrived there in 1961, He was literally one of thousands of patients receiving mental health care at the facility. The October 1961 incident, where he attacked his brother's wife Sharon with a knife, that was the start of hard times for the blended family. Bill was kept at the Pontiac State Hospital for nearly two full years before his release. Meanwhile, his wife and their six children resided in a five-room, $50-a-month house, and the house was located about a 100 yards off of John R. Road in Troy, 2121 Garson Street. If, like me, you enjoy looking these things up on Google Maps, well, the address cannot be found. Best I can tell, their house was somewhere in the north parking lot of Oakland Mall. Garson Street, such that it was, no longer exists. When he arrived at the Pontiac State Hospital, physicians examined Gravlin, evaluating his mental state. One of them noted that Gravlin was still coming to terms with his own father's death by suicide a few years earlier.
2: When formally admitted to the hospital in 1961, two psychiatrists examined him, noting, Confusion, delusion, inappropriate and homicidal behavior, potentially self-destructive.
1: Gravlin would be officially released from Pontiac State Hospital in the summer of 1963. Prior to discharge, he'd had several trips home to stay with his family. Hospital staff considered Gravlin recovered from whatever urges drove him to attack his sister-in-law. Listeners, you should know that in the early part of the 1960s, there wasn't much in the way of patient follow-up. Gravlin was expected to return to his old life. Two years in an asylum and off you go. There was no social worker to call and check in, no friendly nurse from the physician's office to call him a week or six weeks after discharge and make sure he was still behaving normally. It's also likely that he was released with no medication to stabilize his mood or level his thoughts. In the early 1960s, pharmaceuticals to manage mental health issues were few and far between, and the ones that existed often came with difficult side effects. There is no information as to whether Gravlin was prescribed medication after being released from the hospital. In 1963, there wasn't much in the way of post-treatment follow-up. It was in 1963 that President John F. Kennedy introduced legislation to create community mental health centers to work with patients being discharged from state psychiatric hospitals. But this legislation was not acted on in time to assist Bill Gravlin or to save his family. His job with the Royal Oak Fire Department was no longer available, either because of his illness or because the position was filled in his absence. And he took a job on the assembly line at Temprite Products Corporation on East Maple Road in Troy. His foreman at Temprite, a man named Larry Stack, described Gravelin as average, no better or worse than any of his other employees. Stack had no way of knowing that Friday, September 25th, would be Gravlin's last day of employment with Temprite. On the morning of Tuesday, September 29th, 1964, a man named Earl Stone was up and on the road. Stone was 21 years old, a resident of Hazel Park, and he had a good job driving a delivery truck. His morning route found him heading north on John R., As Stone crossed 14-mile road, he spotted a man standing on the side of the road. The man waved, signaling him to pull over. Stone was on a schedule, and he kept driving. He watched the man in his mirror as he drove past, and something compelled Stone to stop, to turn the truck around and go back. Sure, he had deliveries to make, but what if something was wrong? He just couldn't pass the man by. He pulled to the side of the road, turned the truck around, and headed back. As he pulled up near the man, Stone got a bad feeling. "'Are you okay, mister?' he asked, and the man responded with a flat voice. "'Go call the police. I just killed my family.'" Stone stared at him for a moment, noted his disheveled appearance. The man's face was covered with beard stubble. His blue eyes were flat, lifeless, Stone put the truck in gear and headed for the nearest filling station. He knew they'd have a payphone. Stone didn't call 911. It's 1964. The 911 system is many years in the future. He likely asked the operator to connect him with the police. Stone's call is put through to the Madison Heights Police Department. He advised them of the expressionless man and his horrific statement and request. Madison Heights places a call to Troy police. You see anything north of 14 mile? That's the city of Troy. But both departments will send cars to the scene to investigate. When police arrive at the small frame house, which sits about two hundred yards off John R. Road, they are met with a terrible scene. The house smells of blood and death, and the aroma isn't contained inside of the house, it drifts towards them as they get closer. The officers that entered the house encountered something they would never forget. All six of the children are dead. They'd been attacked with an axe, and later, after the axe broke, he'd used a hammer. The youngest, four-year-old Betty Sue Gravlin, Bill Gravlin's only child, was the exception. She had been killed by a single shotgun blast. The bodies, ranging from child size to adult, are covered with linens and clothing from the house each pile beneath which was hidden a body was topped with a handwritten note i love you i'm sorry it couldn't be helped the coverings did little to hide the smell or the seeping pools of darkening blood beneath each body the coroner dr joseph shile of pontiac arrived at the scene He removed the piles of linens and clothing that concealed the remains and took photos of each victim. When police arrive at the home on Garson, they noted that someone had covered all the windows with blankets, sheets, and other items. Dr. Olson, who was there to assist Dr. Scheil because of the number of victims, remarked that he wanted to perform an autopsy on the young female victim on the living room floor. She was on her back, a pillow under her midsection. She was nude, with her clothing beside her on the floor. Her clothing was ripped and torn as if it had been pulled away from her body, and her underpants were beneath her. They, too, were torn. She would later be identified as Judith Ann Bentley, age 16. Stuck to her pajamas was a large knife. It was peeled away from the garment and taken into evidence. Also in the living room were the bodies of Betty Jean Gravlin, William's wife, and the mother of the deceased children. Next to her was the body of her youngest son, 10-year-old Walter. Walter was in his pajamas, but unlike the other victims, investigators noticed bloodstains on the bottoms of his feet indicating that, quote, he had been walking, running, or standing in blood.
2: After the coroner examined all of the bodies, They were outlined on the floor with chalk diagram as best as possible due to the pools of blood. Officer Green and Sergeant Morrison tagged each body.
1: The body of 12-year-old Paula Bentley was found in the northwest bedroom. In the center bedroom, they found the body of 15-year-old Dory Bentley. Both Paula and Dory were wearing their pajamas, but the garments of both girls were pulled up, leaving their bare chest exposed. In the bathroom was the body of William Gravlin's only child, Betty Sue Gravlin. She was the only victim to suffer a gunshot wound. And in the last bedroom, police found the remains of 17-year-old John Benson Bentley. Officers from Troy and Madison Heights Police gathered outside of the small house. No one wanted to see the carnage inside or to be trapped in the cramped space that reeked of death. After confirming that everyone inside was deceased, they waited in the yard for the coroner's office to respond. Troy police searched the yard and area around the home for evidence. Officer Green discovered a double-bladed lumberjack's axe. It was blood-stained and tucked into a gap near the rear of the home's foundation. The officer placed the weapon in the trunk of his cruiser for safekeeping. Remember the axe, because we'll be coming back to it later. A butcher knife was found near the axe, but unlike the axe, the knife didn't have any blood on it. Inside the house, a blood-stained ball-peen hammer was found in the bathroom, not far from the small body of Betty Sue Gravlin. In the kitchen, police discovered an empty Stroh's beer bottle. Nearby was an empty pint of Canadian Club whiskey, a partially consumed bottle of Mogan David wine, and a broken bottle of Stroh's. They also found several 410 casings. A shotgun loaded with 410 is suitable for pest control or hunting small game. In the northwest bedroom of the home, police found five empty beer bottles, along with a bottle labeled Wall and Tile Cleaner, next to an empty drinking glass. They removed several guns from the house a Marlin 410 gauge shotgun a Model 60-06, and a J.C. Higgins twenty-two caliber rifle. If these are listed incorrectly, I apologize. I am reading directly from a 54-year-old police report. Police were making their best guess as to who the people in the house were. They needed members of the Gravlin family to identify the remains. Troy police went to the home of Harry Metatol and Oral Metatol and drove them to Beaumont Hospital so they could identify the bodies. They identified Betty Gravlin's five children, Paula, John, Walter, Dory, and Judy, as well as Betty Sue, the child she had with Bill Gravlin. With the bodies removed and evidence collected, a police guard was placed at the Gravlin home overnight to keep curiosity seekers away. Patrolman Pierce of the Madison Heights Police was the first to respond to the Gravlin home that morning. From his report, I got out of the car and waited for him to approach me. He was wearing a pullover sweater with sport pants and socks, but no shoes. His clothes were soiled and dirty-looking, but did not contain blood. I noticed he was in shock. His eyes were wide and glassy. I asked him what happened, and he responded, I killed my family. I led him to the police car and searched him for weapons. His sweater was wet and he complained of pain on his side and chest when I frisked him. His pants were soaked with urine. After he was in the back of the car, I looked at his chest and saw it was burned and the skin was peeling off in large splotches. When Officer Pierce asked Gravelin what happened to his chest, Gravelin told him he tried to commit suicide by drinking cleaning fluid, but he couldn't do it, so he poured it on himself, hoping that would do the job. Instead, he was covered in painful red chemical burns. When police arrive on scene moments later, they ask that Gravlin be held at the jail in Madison Heights. Chief Fisher didn't want the press to find Gravlin before he could question him. As officers transported Gravlin to the station, Pierce asked him why he did it. Why did he kill his family? Gravlin told him that his wife wanted a divorce, and he wanted the family to stay together. He told Officer Pierce that he tried to end his own life, but he couldn't do it. After delivering Gravelin safely to a holding cell at the Madison Heights Police Department, Officer Pierce went to the home of Gravelin's mother to pick up a set of fresh clothing for the suspect. Gravelin had moved back in with his mother when Betty Jean kicked him out. While Pierce picked up a change of clothes for the prisoner, a doctor was summoned to the police department to treat Gravelin for shock and the chemical burns on his arms and chest. As I read through this old file, I'm struck by the professionalism and kindness shown by law enforcement to someone who just committed a particularly horrific crime. I've read that one of the officers knew Gravlin. They'd grown up together, attended the same high school. Everyone was shocked and horrified, not just that he had done this, but that a crime of this magnitude, that something this violent could happen in a quiet place like Troy. After being treated by a doctor and allowed to clean up and change into fresh clothing, Gravelin is interviewed by Chief Fisher about the murders. During the interview, he admitted using an axe, a hammer, and a shotgun to kill his family, starting with his wife. He told Fisher that he last saw and spoke with his family on Saturday. He was hoping that he and Betty could reconcile, that they could stay together and be a family. Betty told him, no, the marriage is over. There will be no reconciliation. And there's no record of why she wanted the divorce, or of what was unraveling in their marriage. Even in the police reports, all of the quotes and contact is from members of Gravelin's family, not from hers. On Saturday night, after the difficult conversation with his wife, Gravelin left the house on Garson Street, returning to the home of his mother, the house he'd grown up in. And on Sunday evening, Gravlin returned to the home he'd shared with his wife and their children. He arrived after dark, perhaps as late as 11 p.m. or midnight. That's when the killings took place, in the small hours of Monday morning, starting with his wife, Betty Jean, and he worked his way through the children, killing his daughter, Betty Sue, last on Monday morning, just hours after the murders, Gravlin told his mother he needed some money, and she gave him $5. He picked it up around 8 a.m. Then Gravlin went about his day as if six bodies weren't decomposing at the house on Garson Street. He checked to see if his car, which was with the mechanic, was ready to be picked up. It wasn't ready yet, so he visited the pharmacy in Clawson, where he bought sleeping pills and whiskey. He would take a cab back to his house. On September 29, 1964, Oakland County Prosecutor William Lang interviews William Gravlin at the Madison Heights Police Station. Note that 1964 predates Miranda, which became law in 1966, meaning the police likely didn't advise him of his rights before taking him into custody. Lang advised Gravlin that he hoped he would talk to him, but it was Gravlin's right to refuse to speak, or to have an attorney present if he wanted one. Gravlin nodded to demonstrate that he understood what Lang was telling him. During the interview, Gravlin gave short answers to the questions, usually just a yes, a no, or a one word response. He did explain that on Monday morning, after getting five dollars from his mother, "'He'd gone into Clausen to buy a pint of whiskey "'and some sleeping pills at Hunter's Drugstore. "'Hunter's was located at 14 Mile Road and Livernoy "'in the heart of downtown Clausen. Gravlin then returned to the family home "'and cut the gas line leading into the bathroom. "'He filled the bathtub and washed sleeping pills down "'with a pint of whiskey. "'He was hoping that he would pass out and drown in the tub. "'That the combination of the gas and the alcohol and the pills would bring about his end. And when he awoke, it was Tuesday morning, and he was still alive, and his family was very dead. Gravlin exited the bathtub, likely stepping past the body of his young daughter, Betty Sue, on the bathroom floor. He dressed and tried drinking the wall and tile cleaner, but that didn't end his life either. Gravlin kept vomiting when he tried to drink the cleaner so he poured the caustic liquid on his chest and arms, leading to the chemical burns that Officer Pierce would note during the arrest. When the wall and tile cleaner failed him, Gravelin wandered out toward the road where he would wait for someone to stop and help. Eventually, Earl Stone and his delivery truck would see him standing there. Prosecutor William Lang decides that he will only charge Gravelin with one count of murder in the death of 16-year-old Judith Ann Bentley, Lang tells the press that this is done to, quote, avoid legal technicalities. The attorney assigned to represent Gravlin is Robert Rann of Pleasant Ridge. Judge Losey, who presided at the arraignment, told the press that he'd known Bill Gravlin since he was a child. He knew Gravlin's family as well, and that Gravlin could not afford to retain counsel, so the court provided counsel for him. On September 30th, 1964, police interviewed a Mr. Trongo who worked with Gravlin at Temprite Products. Trongo said that he had witnessed Gravlin carrying a double-headed axe from the factory to his car about a week before the murders. He further thought that another employee had sharpened the axe for Gravlin.
2: I did sharpen the axe, a double-bladed woodsman axe. Gravlin said he used it for firewood. In fact, Gravlin brought me a sack of tomatoes in appreciation for sharpening it for him.
1: William Gravlin was again sent to the Pontiac State Hospital. This facility will later be known as Clinton Valley Center, and at the end of October 1964, William Gravlin is found competent to stand trial. Gravlin's court-appointed attorney asks for a second opinion, and during the first week of November, Gravlin is transferred to the Washtenaw County Jail, where he will be examined by two psychiatrists from the University of Michigan Hospital. The funeral of Betty Jean Gravlin and her children is held at the Gramer Funeral Home in Clausen, just a few hundred yards from the Hunter pharmacy where Gravlin bought sleeping pills and whiskey earlier in the week. The funeral home is still there today, just north of fourteen mile on Livernoy. The procession from the funeral home to the cemetery is dramatic. A black hearse containing Betty Jean Gravelin is followed by a row of gray hearses, with the bodies of her children. The hearses were on loan from other area funeral homes. The city of Troy, which owns Perrin Cemetery, donated the graves. Six white caskets and the headstones are paid for by a local veterans group and the Oakland County Social Welfare Division. Betty Jean Gravlin's ex-husband, Joseph John Bentley, the father of her older children, is released a week early from his sentence at the Detroit House of Corrections so that he can attend the burial of his former wife and their children. The bodies are interred among the remains of some of Troy's first settlers. On or about November 16, 1964, Troy police receive a report that the Gravlin home on Garson was vandalized. Bill Gravelin's family were at the house on November 15th to pick up a washing machine, and they realized that many items were missing from the home. The sewing machine, toaster, vacuum cleaner, clock radio, and much of the children's clothing was gone, as well as some of the furniture. Inside the house, the television had been smashed and the dressers ransacked, clothing strewn about the floor. Neighbors said that kids, possibly from Clawson or Royal Oak, were using the house as a party spot. Just a few days later, the home that Bill Gravlin shared with his wife and their children burns to the ground. Arson is suspected. Troy Fire Chief Michael Ford tells the press that someone poured oil on the living room floor of the house. A January 19, 1965, trial date is set for Gravlin. But on January 6, 1965, Gravlin sends a letter to the judge asking that he be allowed to represent himself saying that his court-appointed attorney, Robert Rann, is, quote, sick of the case and sick of me. Gravlin has a list of demands. He wants a notable attorney to represent him, such as Percy Foreman, the lawyer who represented Jack Ruby, or Edward Bennett Williams, who counted Jimmy Hoffa among his clients. On January 7th, Gravlin smashes a window at the jail where he is being held and attempts suicide by rubbing his forearms against the broken panes. His attorney tells the press quote, "My client is seriously mentally ill. Gravelin will admit to attempting suicide but blames harassment from fellow prisoners rather than his own mental illness for his actions in a January fourteenth hearing. Gravelin sat stone-faced during testimony, except when the death of his daughter, Betty Sue, was mentioned that elicited tears from the defendant. Gravelin's mother was also at the hearing. Gravlin is found mentally ill and is sent to the Ionia State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Gravlin's mother smiles as she thanks attorney Robert Rand for helping her son. In May of 1965, Oakland County Prosecutor S. Jerome Bronson tells the press that proper psychological intervention could have prevented the murder of Gravlin's family. Now, if Bronson's name sounds familiar... He is the man behind the plea deal received by Byron Hoffmeister in Episode 99. Hoffmeister had kidnapped, then physically and sexually assaulted two children. But Bronson's office negotiated a plea deal and allowed Hoffmeister to be released after serving less than three years. Hoffmeister would then murder a teenage girl just a few months after his release from prison. In the days following the murders, Troy police set up a round-the-clock guard at the home on Garson. One of the patrolmen who stood watch was George Reed. In 1976, 12 years after the Gravlin family murder, Reed will be a sergeant with the Troy police when the body of Jill Robinson is found on the shoulder of Interstate 75. One of the victims of the Oakland County child killer... I have posted a photo of Patrolman Reed at the scene on our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. In 1968, the same year that the Detroit Tigers won the World Series, William Gravlin is considered competent to stand trial for the murder of his family. He is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. In 1974, Gravlin appeals to the court. Asking that the years he spent in the Ionia State Hospital for the Criminally Insane should count toward time served, the court agrees with him, and Gravlin will spend the remainder of his life in prison.
2: The only part you leave out of your statement is relative to the actual killing. The reason you leave it out, you do not want to think about it. Is that correct? Yes. But you tell me you do remember all of the details. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Special thanks to the Troy Police Department for their assistance in compiling information for this episode. Already Gone will return in October with new cases from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice of Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please, be safe.